Joseph is the heir to the Davidic throne. And the appearance of this detail sets the stage for Joseph's legal adoption of Jesus into the royal line. Although Joseph, I mean Jesus, although Jesus is not Joseph's son biologically, when Joseph gives him the name Jesus, the name that is above all names, that child becomes Joseph's son legally, and therefore Jesus is part of the royal line. The angel relays to Joseph two divine commands. The first divine command is this, take Mary as your wife. The second divine command is this, give him the name Jesus. But what's important for us to see is that the angel just doesn't merely give commands, which he could have done. They're God's commands. But in his grace, God gives the reason why Joseph is to do these things. The reason he is to take Mary as his wife is because, quote, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph learns that Mary has not been unfaithful to him, that the child she carries in her is the supernatural work of God. We have to assume that this would have been tremendously difficult for Joseph to understand, that this child was, was somehow miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. Imagine trying to comprehend that. But listen, listen to this. I believe that the same spirit that accomplished this miraculous work in Mary is the same spirit that did a work in Joseph's heart and gave him a confident peace about it. Notice that Matthew is very reserved in his reporting of this amazing development. Matthew limits himself to reporting only what the angel said to Joseph. Doesn't give anything in addition. Matthew doesn't theorize, he doesn't speculate on how this conception could be possible or how it took place. Instead, all he does is report the facts as historical facts. It would be fair to say that the apostle recognizes that there's something both natural and supernatural at work here, but he doesn't dare to speculate on the matter because he recognizes that this is something that is clearly beyond his, Matthew's understanding and clearly beyond ours. The angel continues to relay the message at 21. And this is the message and the gift of Christmas. Look, please, Matthew 1, 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And why? For or because he will save his people from their sins. This verse outlines for all three members of the Holy Family an essential task. And so the angel speaking about Mary says, she will bring forth a son. 
Speaking to Joseph, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. And then speaking of Jesus himself, the angel says, he will save his people from their sins. This name Jesus, as many of you know, was a very popular name in the first century, the name Jesus. Actually, in the Hebrew tongue, it was Yeshua. And what does that mean? That name mean, Yeshua? Yahweh saves. And like many Hebrew names, it was both a testimony and a prayer. Each time someone might say the name Yeshua, it was a testimony that God has saved in the past, Yahweh has saved in the past, while it was also a prayer that God would save in the future. Yahweh saves. Yehovah saves. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. It is a testimony and a prayer. Consequently, we're told by biblical historians that why, because it was such a popular name, there were so many Yeshuas. That is why we see in the Gospels where Jesus is referred to with a modifier, right? He is not just Yeshua or Jesus. He is Jesus of Nazareth, right? It's to distinguish him from the many other Yeshuas or Jesuses that were uh, in Israel at the time. But, but, while many were given this name Jesus, how many were given that name Jesus by God himself? Only one. Only one. He is the unique. He's qualified, but he is uniquely qualified. He is the only one who was given this name Jesus, Yahweh saves, by God himself. That's why the angel explains, for this Jesus will save his people from their sins. And when we read his people, we know his people are all those who will repent and believe. The next verse of this passage is immensely significant, and it will require our special consideration. Let's look at verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Notice, again, how Matthew begins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled. When Matthew says all this, he's referring specifically to the miraculous conception that will lead to the virgin birth. This morning, I'd like us to go to the Old Testament and hear Isaiah's prophecy that Matthew is referring to here. And so if you'll save your place in Matthew, let's go to Isaiah Chapter 7, verse 1. Remember, we slipped a piece of paper there earlier. In the Pew Bible, that's on 790, page 790. We're going to Isaiah 7, 1. 
And while you're turning there, let me offer you some chronological background. We're now going back in time from Matthew's day. We're going back in time 750 years, 750 years before the birth of Christ. We're going back in time to the days when a man named Ahaz was king of Judah. Ahaz, king of Judah. It is important for us to know that this Ahaz is a descendant of King David. And he's part of this messianic line. His name appears in the genealogy that is in the first chapter of Matthew. And you can check that later. The rule of Ahaz occurs approximately 200 years after King David. Now back to David. David was a powerful and effective ruler that governed over a united kingdom. But shortly after David's rule, his kingdom was divided into two separate kingdoms. It was then comprised of a northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, and a southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. And the kings which ruled these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms, some of these kings were good kings, some of these kings were bad kings. Ahaz was not just a bad king, he was a wicked king. Let's look please at Isaiah 7.1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, there he is, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. Now let me give an explanation here, because there is a big jumble of names all mixed, thrown in there. But there are actually only three names here that are important. And I'll sort this out for you very quickly. The first name that's important is Ahaz. Again, he is the king of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And in the southern kingdom of Judah is the crucial city of Jerusalem. The other two names that are in this jumble are the names of two kings who formed an alliance and these two kings wanted to attack Ahaz to remove him from the throne and install their own puppet king. These two kings are Rezan, the king of Syria, and Syria is just north of Israel, still is today, and the other king is Pekah, the king of Israel, that is the northern kingdom. And so these two kings and their armies, they march south. And the reason the text says they went up to Jerusalem, even though they're going south, is because Jerusalem sits at a higher elevation than all of Israel, or most of Israel, or at least that area. And so they went south, and they were marching up to Jerusalem. And the kings make their initial attacks, but Jerusalem's defense is held. Why? It's a walled city. But 
King Ahaz and his people, they are afraid. Let's go please to verse 2. And it was told to the house of David, meaning to Ahaz and his officials. See, Ahaz is, is part of the house of David. He's a descendant of David. It was told to the house of David, meaning Ahaz, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And so this imagery of a forest of trees being moved by the wind is a poetic way, way of saying that all Jerusalem is hit with a wave of fear. They are fearful because these armies are surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Now let me state once again, Ahaz, oh, he is a wicked king. In fact, he's one of the most wicked of kings. His great wickedness included setting up idols to the Canaanite god Baal. He's, he's a descendant of David, and he's setting up idols to Baal. But here's, the, listen to this. Ahaz burned his own children, sacrificing them to the pagan god Moloch. And yet, listen to this. God would preserve the life of this wretched, wretched and despicable man. Why? <laughs> Not for his sake, but for the sake of a promise that God made to his ancestor David. God made a promise to David that from his line would come a king who would rule forever, whose kingdom would never end. And we know who that king of kings is, don't we? Jesus. And so God sends to Ahaz the prophet Isaiah. Let's look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the... Let's look at the detail of this. Tell me this is not a historical document. At the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field. That's pretty specific directions, right? Verse 4, And say to him, Take heed and be quiet, meaning calm yourself. Do not fear or be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoking firebrands or because of the fierce anger of Ritzen and Syria, etc. That is, don't be afraid of these two kings that are aligned against you. And here's why. Here's why God says that Ahaz doesn't need to fear. Skip to verse 7, please. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. What Isaiah is essentially saying to Ahaz is that God is in control. He's saying that God is sovereignly directing all of history for his salvation purposes. And we know the reason the Lord is doing this. The Lord made a promise that through Abraham, through David, and even through a wretched man like Ahaz, God would provide the Savior. And when God makes a promise, there is nothing. There is no plan of man. There is no scheme of hell that will prevent the Lord from fulfilling his promise. To make sure that Ahaz can be confident 
that God will keep his promise, that God will do what he says, that God will prevent these two northern kings from sacking Jerusalem, God gives an amazing invitation. God invites Ahaz to suggest a sign that will secure his confidence. Look, please, at verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. This is an amazing offer. God says to Ahaz, through Isaiah, to assure you that I will keep my promise, you come up with a sign. Suggest anything. Literally, the sky's the limit. Nothing's off the table. You name it, and I will do it. And when I fulfill that promise, that prophecy, that, that sign that you're asking for, you will know that these two northern kings will not prevail against you. And what is the king's response? No. Not going to do it. And what does he say? I will not ask for a sign. I will not test for the Lord. I will not test the Lord. Now, on the face of it, that seems reverent. It seems pious. I'm not going to test the Lord. Ahaz may have remembered the words of Moses, who in the book of Deuteronomy says, Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. But what Ahaz is actually doing here is actually an act of rebellion. Because it was God himself who said, Propose a sign, and I'll do it. And Ahaz said, No way. And so the prophet Isaiah inspired by God's Holy Spirit, says this. Let's look at verse 13. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, meaning Ahaz and all your people, listen to this. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings." The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. The prophecy here about the virgin has been debated for millennia. But there is a strong consensus for the following explanation I will now give you. The prophecy here is speaking about a young woman who was a member of the royal house. Perhaps she was one of Ahaz's daughters. Or perhaps she is the daughter of one of Ahaz's officials, men of his cabinet. Perhaps one of them had a young daughter. And this young woman, who was a virgin at the time of this prophecy, she would soon marry conceive a child, and bear a son, all according to the natural way of things. Meaning, she would be a virgin 
until she was married and impregnated by her husband. And when this son arrived, that boy would be given the name Emmanuel. Now it seems reasonable to conclude that when this prophecy was given to Ahaz, the young virgin was not in attendance at this meeting with Ahaz and Isaiah. And so she could not know about the prophecy or any of its details, which would mean that after the young woman had her son and named the boy Emmanuel, this would have been a clear sign to Ahaz that this was no coincidence, but this was the sovereign hand of God. And because God had fulfilled the prophecy of a virgin naming her child Emmanuel, Ahaz could be sure that the rest of God's word would also be fulfilled. And according to this prophecy, it was foretold to him that before the child was old enough to discern right from wrong, the southern kingdom of Judah would be delivered from the threat by the invasion of those two northern kings. And we know that promise was kept because that northern alliance of those two wicked kings was broken when the Assyrian Empire marched in from the east and crushed those two northern kings. Let's go back to Matthew. And as we return to Matthew, let me say this. This prophecy from Isaiah is an example of a common feature of biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy often is given in such a way that there is a partial fulfillment in the short term, but then later there is a perfect and full fulfillment in the long term. And so this full and perfect fulfillment occurs in Christ. So what occurred in Isaiah's day was a preview. It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do perfectly. And that is what Matthew sees here, and he identifies. He sees the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah's day completely fulfilled in Christ. And it's easy to see why that would be. Because when Jesus was born, when Jesus was born to a virgin, Mary remained a virgin even at the conception of this holy child. Jesus was miraculously conceived in such a way that it occurred without the agency of a human father. His placement in the womb of Mary was accomplished by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And because this work was the work of the Holy Spirit, the son born by Mary would be the true and perfect Emmanuel. The child born in Isaiah's day, that was a promise. The, the son born to Mary, that was a fulfillment. Because this son is the true Emmanuel, because Jesus is truly God with us. And so we see the 100% fulfillment of Scripture. Let's go, please, to Matthew 24. 
Matthew 1.24, as Matthew finishes the section by reporting what Joseph does after this angelic visit. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took to him his wife, and did not know her till he had brought forth, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. And so this passage ends triumphantly because conferred upon this child is the name that is above all names. It is the name Jesus. Yahweh saves because he saves people from their sins. All who believe in him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to see prophecy fulfilled because it is the assurance that all prophecy will be fulfilled. And there is no greater prophecy than this, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, we believe it because you have said it and you have all things under your divine control. And for this, we give you thanks, not only this Christmas season, but every season. Amen.